the recording. Jeremy, can you hear me? I hear you. Great. So today's clubhouse is about the book "Am I Being Too Subtle" by Sam Zell. And as always, I have my co-host Jeremy with us.、Hi. And I actually I changed the name of the title of this room to CRE Book and DJ because Jeremy is going to talk about the book, and I will take care of the DJ part. And the song that you just listened at the very beginning of the room, the name of the song is called "Feel Good." So, Jeremy, would you like to start with what is the book about, and then we can go from there? Well, first, I'd like to thank you for having me on again. It's really、uh, great to be You're here. You were muted on Clubhouse. I'm muted. Hold on. First, it's really great to be here. I apologize. We're trying to work through all the.、Um, The podcast and Clubhouse doing it at once. It's an honor to be here. This is a great podcast.、Uh, we had a lot of fun last week. I hope we can have as good a time this week. But you know, the the bar is pretty high. But we'll try to get there. So this is really a great book.、Uh, I, I you know before we start, I mean, I think you had the pleasure of meeting Sam Zell, didn't you, Minja? Yes, I met him three years ago at the NYU Shack conference. So I got a signed copy from him of the book. Mine isn't. I think somebody pointed out he's a frequent speaker on CNBC. You know, one of our guests last week pointed out you can't always take that for face value. But I, I think you can take out of that his long term, you know, where he's going with what and what he thinks. So I, I don't take anything anybody says on TV seriously. I think you have to think about it. It's, it's stuff to make you think. But you know, the book was basically his story of his life. Sam Zell is an immigrant son. And he started. He's one of the few people I can think of who's actually started multiple Fortune 500 sized companies. The only one other one I can think of is Eli Broad, who became a museum、uh, in Los Angeles. But Zell has started, and I don't know if they're Fortune 500 companies, but these are sizable companies. He started Equity Office. He started Equity Residential. He started Equity Lifestyle, which owns the pads beneath manufactured homes, which is. Apparently, you know, there was actually a very interesting article in the New Yorker last week about private equity being involved in manufactured homes and you know, the the problems allegedly with that, which we could talk about. I believe he's been involved in several other deals, mainly private equity. He owned an airline, he owned a railroad at one point. I think he owned an oil barrel company, and he was involved in a disastrous deal where he took over、uh, the Tribune Company, which he actually goes into in depth in the book. So basically, Zell. Started out in real estate in college, and he bought an apartment building, you know, maintained it. Eventually, moves back to Chicago and decides I'm going to get into real estate. And you know, when I finished law school, I was looking for a job. Zell goes in there. The guy looks at him and says, "Why are you here looking for a job? You know, just take some space here. You know, do your deals and make money for everybody." He becomes involved with Jay Pritzker. And then, who's one of the greatest capitalists in American history, and, and then he becomes involved with this guy Bob Lurie, who becomes his partner. And I think there's a lot we can learn from that. As he talks about how they complemented each other, and Lurie unfortunately died. I believe they endowed something in their memory at, at, at Penn. I think there's a, a real estate institute there. But we made、um, a bunch of comments, and you know, Zell talks about he talks about his life and. 
starting equity office, selling equity office, starting equity residential. He talks about where he sees value and how he got into all that. But I was kind of thinking we could talk about, you know, we made a list of about 15, 13 or 14 points that we could talk about and how they're relevant to your listeners, because this is really about what your listeners can learn from Sam Zell. Although I recommend everybody read the book. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I, I think you did too. Um, which part do we like to start? I know the first two or three chapters of the book, he talks about his immigrant parents and then basically his childhood. But I think I'm more interested about his career. So should we first talk about how he has an entrepreneur mindset and he started with the student housing I, management company? I think we should we could talk, start by talking about that, but taking it from, from a different perspective. Instead of just recapping the book, I think if we think about what it means for us and what it means for the listeners, I think that's really what we could take away from it. And the thing I took away from the first few chapters, there were two things. Number one was you got to be bold. You got to identify opportunities when you see them. That goes without saying. But the thing I really took away was um, was mentorship and networking and family. Zell greatly admires his father, who was an entrepreneur, but his father was a neighborhood entrepreneur, much like I think Steve Schwartzman's father was kind of the same way. He owned a hardware store or something. And I, I think the story goes that Schwartzman goes up to his dad and says, let's take this national. And his dad says, I'm fine. Look, I paid for your college. So I think it just shows the difference in mindset and, and, you know, listen, what, what their parents did was what their parents were very successful. My grandfather had a, was a, in the shipping business, he owned this uh, kind of like a smaller oriental trading and listen, it paid, he was very satisfied with what it was. I think these guys just thought bigger, but they took the lessons away from their father and he networks his way into into becoming involved with Jay Pritzker, who, as I mentioned before, is one of the greatest capitalists in history. He owned Hyatt Hotels. He owned the Marmon Group, which has since been broken up. I think it's now. How you're doing is so important because what you're doing is enabling people to network. We've got seven, eight, 10 people in the room. We had 20 people last week. How many people listen to your podcast that you post online? You're networking, you're building a community. And what, what, I took away from the first few chapters, other, aside from the entrepreneurship and seeing opportunities, was if you network and you build communities and you build friends, and I see there are all kinds of people in the room, you never know where it could lead. And this guy gets himself an opportunity to do business with the greatest deal maker in America. I mean, Jay Pritzker built a, they, they were a small family law firm, and Jay Pritzker built, they don't talk about this in the book, but the Pritzkers are one of the greatest philanthropic business families in the country. One, I think a niece was secretary of commerce. One of them is now governor of Illinois. These people are titans in the business world. And unfortunately, if they've had some you know, legal issues, it's been well, well documented that the, the Pritzker family partnerships have broken up. But the essence of the first few chapters, I think, was mentorship and networking and, and having an, an idol, a role model who you can look up to, like Zell looks up to his father. And, and, and living your life to bring, like, honor that example and to make your father proud. And I think he did. And I think he's proud. That's probably one of the things he's most proud of. Um, you know, what do you think? Yes, I was going to ask you, I was actually in another room 
Um, it's okay if you mute your mic from your end, please, Jeremy. Sorry, we're figuring out the Zoom versus Clubhouse mic situation. But I was actually in the room last night with a lot of the young professional. Most of them are undergraduate students who are interested to learn about commercial real estate or want to get a master's in commercial real estate. And one of the topics we talked about was as a young person, I mean, like when Sam Zell, when he started, he was in college, I think, when he started the student management company. And then how do young people can reach out to mentors like that or build our network like that? Well, I'm no expert on that. I think you're much more of an expert on that than me. So I, I, would, I would reply by throwing the question back at you. And I'd say, if you're looking for an answer to that, you really need to look in the mirror. Uh, you live in Vegas, and you've got people around the country listening to your podcast. You come to a book club and you say, you know, why don't you come on my show and let's build something? Uh, I think what you're doing is, is exactly that. And I think by coming to these events, you meet people. Back before the plague happened, we would go to things like ULI events. I think, uh, or ULI, or NAIOP, Cornet, all of these groups, and you basically put hundreds of people in the room. You know what? I, I've never been very good at networking in that situation. You put a thousand people in a room. I'll just stand there like in Wallflower City on, by the, uh, although I don't drink by the bar, just drinking club soda. Um, but I think the, the, the thing that's, and this just goes for me, I, I really want to hear what you have to say. Um, the thing that I think is most interesting about the pandemic is it's really made people think differently about networking. And you've developed Clubhouse and the, you know, the, you're using the NYU group chats to, to develop Clubhouse. And then you're pinging other people. Many of these people have probably never even met each other, but you know what? This is how you network and that's how you do it. And Zell didn't really, nobody really goes into this, but this is how you meet people. And you know, in a few years, you know, this is, you know, you've advanced in your company, you see a deal, you come to a couple people, you know, you know, yeah, that's a good deal. Let's put some money into it. That's how a guy like Zell raises money. He raises money from pension funds and institutional investors and high net worth individuals like Jay Pritzker, who he's met and who people have introduced him to just because um, that's what people want to do. Uh, my uncle wrote an article last week on NYCHA and I'm taking a class on affordable housing. And I forwarded it to the professor and she replies, you know, I, I should probably meet your uncle, speak to your uncle because I have, so cease, let's make an introduction. There you go. I think that's really, but I, again, I want to hear what you have to say about that because you're far better at this than most. One quick question before I answer that question, who is your professor for affordable housing? Because I had that class too. Uh, Emily Yusuf. Yes, yes. She's 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 an expert at affordable housing. She was the as you know, she was the head of um one of the big agencies in New York City. Yes, yeah, she she was my professor for affordable housing too. And there's another book that I think both of us recommend other people's money. And then her agency was in the book and it talks about how they bid on the Skytown affordable housing project in New York. Or what's uh, the was, name of that? So that was um Stuyvesant Town and Peter Cooper. They were built, um, and there's actually a podcast that you can listen to called The Bower Boys, and they have an episode about this. It was basically like a gas tank farm. And after the war, the city basically teams up and gave some things to MetLife, who built the projects. And, and look, there were issues with how MetLife managed it, but it was a very nice middle-class housing project. And over the years, 
NetLife began to try to make money off it. And eventually they said, why are we, they became, they went public and they're like, why are we hanging on to this? And they ended up selling it. And I'm trying to get the, uh, the city councilman who was very involved in that deal uh, from the tenant side. Uh, I'm trying to get him to appear before the book club because I think students need to know that it's not just what the real estate professional wants. You have to take into account what the community wants. And for better or worse, the communities are becoming more and more assertive. And one thing that Zell talks about in his book is he never really did development. He would focus on buying buildings below replacement cost. He would look for deals and he would and he would see a deal he would strike and he would create value. And that's how he built equity office. And frankly, that's how he sold equity office. Great. So yeah, we don't want to get too much off topic about the other project, but we have more people joining our room, Jeremy. So this room is our weekly book club. And I changed the name to CRE Book and DJ because Jeremy is going to take care of the book part and I'm going to play the music and I'm the DJ. And today we're going over the book, Am I Being Too Subtle by Sam Zell. And Jeremy, would you like to talk about how he started? Well, equity is, 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 it's like his brand name. So he's got like five equities. There's an equity lifestyle, there's equity residential, there's equity office. And I'm sure there are a couple others that I'm not remembering. So equity residential is still around. That was, he saw, I have it opened here. I just randomly opened the book. And there's an article or the page that I randomly opened the book. To, this is the great thing about when you just randomly open a book like by a guy like Zell, you, you know, any page will have a comment. So he sees that people are not getting married early. And you know, the, the traditional after the war thing was you would get married and move to the suburbs. So he sees people are staying single and they want to live in, in the center of the city. So he starts buying below replacement costs, these really nice apartment buildings. And what do you know, in a, within a few years, he's built up this massive portfolio of, of, of beautiful apartment buildings that still exists, still trades on the, I think it's on the, the big board. And that, that company's still around. Then he identified another thing that he thought he could make money off of where he would buy, um, sort of affordable housing, but they were the pads where the manufacturer homes live. So we used to call them trailer parks. And you know, a lot of that, they're cheaper housing and you own the ped, you collect a nice rent for it, but you don't own the manufactured home. The person who owns the manufactured home, the trailer has to pay you rent. And it's, it, it's controversial, but you know, that's a separate topic for a separate time. And then there was the, the, the big one, Equity Office. And Zell was the grave dancer. So he would notice, he identified value in these buildings. And during the 70s and 80s, he would buy downtown office buildings at below replacement cost. And he would basically borrow below what the inflation was, because back then inflation was really high. And, inflation, and, and real estate values are still inflating. Because they've kept the uh, because asset prices in general are inflating and they've kept interest rates so low, so he would buy these things and he made a lot of money doing it. He'd buy the buildings and he'd just sit there and and you know ride it out. And whether or not he was a good tenant, the buildings were of such caliber that they were when that they were outstanding. And Frizzell, he would always know what he knew what the buildings were worth so he used to 
go through it and try to see where the buildings were. He was getting kind of alarmed that these buildings were valued by the market at b- below the discount, where at a discount to what he felt they were worth. And I don't remember if he gets into this in the book, but I think by then the market was kind of shifting. They wanted to see people who had expertise in a few markets. Zell had buildings everywhere, Nashville, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Orange County, Portland. He was like a vacuum cleaner. He was going around the country, buying up buildings when they were at discounts and, and he knew what they were worth. And the markets were at that, at some point, the market was just like, yeah, we, we don't like this model anymore because the mar- the model now is something like Boston Properties, who owns buildings in San Francisco, Boston, and New York, where literally they're, you're on a peninsula. Now, they, they also like SL Green, all, or they did like SL Green, who only owns buildings in a particular area of Manhattan, or Vernado, who owns buildings. They want to see people who know it really well. And I think that's what led up to the decision to sell. Zell does not say that he wanted to sell equity office, but I think the his business model by then, I think, was kind of getting dated. He'd blended asset classes. He'd created instant arbitrage by borrowing to buy inflated assets. He'd been the first real REIT. And it was just undervalued. And I think at some point he saw that it was undervalued. He denies that he wanted to sell out. Uh, I don't know if I believe him. Uh, I think he knew what was going on. I remember Blackstone, not Blackstone, Schwartzman in his book made a specific comment that Sam Sam just wanted out of that commercial real estate. He did not want to own stock. Zell says in the, in this book, I think that he did not. You know, I think his point was. If I'm going to own stock, I want to manage it. I don't want to own shares in some other guy, even if it's Steve Roth's company, which is legitimate. I mean, it's it's just very interesting. I thought he 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 definitely timed the market right, and what he did next is another story. I think New York City had like a recession in the early '90s. Was that the time where he started Equity Office? I thought he started Equity Office in the 70s or 80s, but you generally had real estate recessions and he was able to go around and, and there, there was a there was apparently a capital shortage in the early not at certain points in time. And by going public, he was able to tap into that. And he was able that was one of the times where he bought these assets. So so I think he spent about 30 years accumulating these assets. And he and he would buy during recessions. He was the grave digger. The grave dancer. He would buy during a recession. And and listen, um, there's if there's one thing in life that we know, it's that there's going to be a recession at some point. Um, you know, it, it, markets will go up, markets will go down. If you live in Florida, there will be a hurricane. Markets will go up and markets will go down. And and during the dislocation, that's where the fortunes are made. And Zell really made a fortune by waiting for the recession and scooping up. Because what's the other thing we've learned about real estate developers? They all get over leveraged. And Zell was careful and he was able to stay solvent. I think he had some problems at some point, but that was solved when he went public. And you know they, they had access to the public markets and he was able to accumulate quite a portfolio. And he knew when to sell, although he doesn't say that in the book. But you know, I'm, uh, that's my judgment. So that's purely um, 
that's purely uh, editorial. So, so now can we talk about how he sold Equity Office? And I think there's like, I think this is the highlight of the book. It's about that bidding war. I'm just trying to get used to every time we trade the mic, we have to turn our mics off. We're so I apologize to the listeners and to the podcasters. So I think everybody had been looking at Equity Office and saying, that's a nice company. I'd, I'd love to get my hands on some of those assets. And I think Zell knew something was going on. At that point, the market, you know, the good times had been rolling for a few years. And I think he was starting to say, you know what? People were starting to ask. John Gray comes up to him and says, what's it going to take to sell? You know, he's been asked by everybody, you know, Fasciatelli, all these guys who want the assets. And what Gray does is really brilliant. It, it, it's like a, de- in a development on what Zell did. What Zell did was it find the negative arbitrage during the recession and buy up individual assets. Blackstone's doing that with a portfolio. So he basically looks at the company and says, this is the company. I, I think that the company, the, the company is the book. That's what it's worth. According to the market, but I think the value is actually what the legal path is, which is you know a third more. So so John Gray at Blackstone looks at this and says, you know what, I can make money here. I'll buy it and I can sell off it piecemeal because the net asset value is this. The the the, the market's valuing it at this because it's got all these discounts baked in there because they don't think they think it's too it's not managed well. They you know, who knows what the market thinks. He puts together a bid and, and Zell comes up to him and says, they go to Zell and they say, what's it going to take? And Zell says, it's going to take a godfather offer. Now, what's a godfather offer? An offer I can't refuse. Now, when Marlon Brando makes that offer, you've seen the godfather, right? But we have to fix that. So in The Godfather, the, the, the offer that you can't refuse is, so I, I think Marlon Brando talks about making the offer and he, you know his godson wants a part. And his godson's like, and he says to his godson, do X, Y, and Z, and, and you'll get the part. And he's like, how are you going to do this? He says, I'm going to make him an offer he couldn't refuse. Well, what's that mean? Well, you know, I'm going to figure out what it's going to take to make sure he doesn't refuse. And I'm going to threaten him with that. Like, you know, maybe holding a band leader out the window and holding a gun to his head and saying, you know, I'm going to drop you out the window if you don't do what I want. Um, maybe it's killing the guy's horse and then telling him, yeah, maybe we'll kill your horse next. Maybe we'll kill your kids and maybe you. Um, in terms of business, it's just it's just so much money that you can't say no. So Blackstone comes up with a bid and now it's open season. There's a low, there's a low breakup fee. So he knows what he wants. And he he's basically saying, I want you guys to bid against each other. And he sets up a bidding war. So Vornado comes in. And I, I think you should read the, uh, the, 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 the the poem that he traded with Steve Roth. Wait, let me, Jeremy, you have the, you have the poem. I have the poem. Uh, hold but on. While you're finding that on WhatsApp, I sent it to you yesterday. I have a quote from his book. I read this book two years ago. So I have a Google sheet that has some of the good quotes here. So he sets up the bidding war. And in this book, he said, I jokingly tell people that competition is great for you. Me, I would rather have a natural monopoly. And if I can't get that, I would take on a logically 
Okay, sorry guys. English is like my third language. <laughs> Jeremy, you can read the quote. So, so basically, Zell finds out that Steve Roth, the the biggest mogul who owns he he's Roth owns runs Vernado, and they've been friends for thirty years. And he basically says sends him a letter. These are these this guy is eccentric. This is a guy who does not wear ties. And look, when you're Sam Zell, you can get away with wearing whatever you want. You can wear jeans and motorcycle boots every day. Roses are red, violets are blue. I hear a rumor. Is it true? Roth responds, roses are red, violets are blue. I love you, Sam. Our bid is 52. That's $52 a share. So the problem is, is that Roth's bid is stock and cash. So there are two problems with that. Number one, Zell doesn't, if Zell's selling, why does he want to still be involved and invested in, in Bornado Reef? You know, I think Zell's point was, if I want out, I'm done. Give me the cash. Let me go do something else. You know, I can deploy the cash, however. I don't need to be inv- invested in another REIT that I'm not running, that my management team run by, you know, I'm running that run by Mike Fascitelli and Steve Roth. And now, to the States, run by Steve Roth. So he goes back to Blackstone and says, well, can you come up with anything better? And John Gray has to do some calculations. He basically looks at this deal and he says, I'm not going to focus on the money. It's the extra money. Because I think his original bid had been $48.50 a share. Blackstone comes up with a bid of $55.50 a share, which is eight bucks higher than they had originally bid. I'm sorry, I'm reading this off a screen. Uh, it's $40 billion. In total, thirty-nine billion. You know, adding fees and all that. So I think there are two things. Number one is Zell gets what he wants. He gets the price he wants, and he gets it in cash. So he could, you know, at that point, he gets to walk away with the cash. They pay off the debt. That's you know, he walks with forty billion in cash. Well, not forty billion for him. It's a read. So you know, he walks away with a lot of cash. Blackstone doesn't have to go to their their shareholders. I think the other problem with uh, Vornado was it, it's a company that's public, so they need to go and talk to their shareholders. They have to have a meeting. You know, somebody's going to sue them. It's going to be a whole giant to do. And I think that's the other thing. You know, at this point, Zell, for whatever reason, he's not admitting it. I think we both know what we think. But Zell wants out. You know, he's like, I could go do something else. You know, maybe central office. Maybe he's ahead of the time. Maybe he's really a seer. So he basically sells out. And the other, another point that he had is he's not sentimental. At this point, he's not holding on to the ass and saying, oh, but it's beautiful. It's a trophy. No, he's like, I'm done. I got the price I want. This is not my house. This is not a family heirloom. It's a building. It's a piece of real estate. There's no need to, people get crazy about real estate. People get crazy about their houses, you know, to the point where, you know, they're, like I'm sure everybody has a story about people who go crazy, but yeah, he doesn't do that. I'm sorry. Yeah, I was going to add that. Remember last Wednesday we talked about the book The Liar's Ball, and how that developer was heartbroken when he lost his portfolio, and the same thing that happens to a lot. Of, I think in Sam Zell's book he talked about how he doesn't want to be a developer. He just wants to be an investor and just buy buildings. He doesn't want to build buildings. And one of the things that we see in all of the real estate developers is that these buildings are their babies and it's really hard to exit or 
I don't know if you look at some of the developers on the strip, I always talk about Las Vegas, like, like all of these legendary developers, it's so hard for them to sell it to a weed like back in 80s or 90s. But now all of these corporations, they can easily sell their buildings because these gaming executives, they were not the original developers. You know, I, th I think you hit it on the head there. At the end of the day, an office building is an office building. It's just an office building. You know, it's generally, they're very interchangeable. But what you're talking about, what you just mentioned was buildings on the strip. Those really are their babies. These are things, Steve Wynn spent how many years building Wynn, building, building the Bellagio, building all the other ones. You know, how much time did these guys spend building those? I think you're absolutely right. You know, the, the developers get very sentimental about their building. And Zell's point was, look, it's a building. I don't care. I'm not a developer. I think the story in there is that he got involved with development. And I, I think development has, there's just too much he can't control. You've got the city, you've got, you know, contractors, you know, if you just buy the asset and you're managing the asset, it's, it's, you're just managing the asset and improving it. He's really into identifying and mitigating risk. He wants to make sure that he can see the downside and protect it. And, and he mentions in his book two specific things, and, and these both involved exogenous shock. And one of them was the cruise company. So he's going to basically go out and build a, buy a cruise company, build two new cruise ships. And then 9-11 happens and nobody's going on cruises anymore. And I think that's, that's an interesting parallel to today because I don't know if the cruise industry is going to come back. I was listening to somebody talk in a class I'm, I was auditing. And he was basically saying, look, people go on cruises. The problem is, is that these companies, the way that they're capitalized, they need a certain occupancy. And if you see a drop of 10%, you may have a lot of problems. And at that point, he ends up just exiting the deal, he loses money. But you know, his investors aren't unhappy because look, you know, he was fair with them. He was honest. The one that's kind of interesting and controversial is the Tribune deal. And a lot of people, you know, I think we're still seeing a lot of the fallout from that. Um, yeah, that deal, they used something called an equity, an ESOP, an equity, an employee stock ownership plan. So Zell put some money in. He got warrants to buy most of the company if it did well. And he bought the Tribune company. He sells the baseball team, uh, the Cubs, I think. It's the Cubs, right? Yeah, the Cubs. He sells the Cubs. And ironically, we're, this is a real estate form. So the Cubs are sold to the Ricketts family. They own Ameritrade. And they're very politically involved. Uh, they're big donors. That one of them is the governor of Nebraska, I think, and, and they basically go and they're redeveloping the whole area around that. Zell's not interested in that. Zell's like, look, it's a, it's a, it's a baseball team. I don't care. He buys it for the newspapers, and then two things happen: the Great Recession hits, and the the, the advertising market collapses. But the the newspaper market you, is not what it used to be in the United States. I mean, when I was a kid, we used to get the New York Times. It was this thick every day. Now it's, it's, it's not as thick. It's not as good. You know, it's a lot more, you know, people don't like the media, but the, you know, the, 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 they're not making money. They used to make 20, 30%. Now they're barely breaking even if that, and, and, you know, the current crisis I think is that a lot of these newspapers are falling into the hands of hedge funds who are just laying everybody off and basically making them into, into, you know, carbon copies of each other. And that's very controversial. Uh, so we're still seeing the fallout from his from his Tribune deal. And he talks about that in the book. Now I know employees of that company who hate Samsung. And you know, they talk about him like, oh, he destroyed us. 
I think the truth is somewhere between. I think he actually talks about it very honestly. And could you also talk about what happened to Equity Office portfolio after Blackstone bought it? We also mentioned a little bit about this part last week, but I think it's a good, you know, refresh memory, especially to the new new audience. So Blackstone doesn't buy the properties to 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 hold them. Blackstone set looks at this and says, "Look, we're buying." Like Zell looked at it like replacement value. I can buy this building for less than it would cost to develop it, and I don't have to develop it. Development is the headache. Just look out your window at the the building the Koch brothers bought. Uh, I think it's now the it was the Fontainebleau. Now it's uh, Metro City. What's it called? I the Drew. Um, Steve Weekoff bought it, and we name it to the Drew. But I don't know whether the Koch brothers will name it to something else, or maybe they will name it back to Fountain Blue because now the new developer is also the original developer who designed this building. So I'm sure he wants to name his building the name he wants to. I, I think it's the exact same thing. You know, you got you know the Koch brothers are buying that building because they see an asset that has real value. At the very least, it's a building that's half built, and there's st- you could sell the steel and you could sell the land, so you can recoup something. So there's replacement value there, and they see that there's a chance to make more. Zell, Zell doesn't want to bother with that. From Zell's perspective, he's basically thinking, I don't want to be doing that. That's too much risk. So he buys these buildings below replacement value during recessions. And, and what, the, what the other guys are doing is they're buy, what Blackstone does is they buy the portfolio and they slowly start to sell it off. And they've identified before they even buy it, they've identified big chunks of the properties that can be sold to other developers. So you've got a chunk of buildings in, in LA and Douglas Emmett Company a big REIT in LA says, hmm, you know, we'll buy those and we'll pay you more because we're a REIT. We don't care. You know, we're, we, you know, we just want the cash flow. Harry Mackle buys that buys the seven buildings in New York for a billion dollars or $7 billion. So when you close the deal, they're paying black, they're paying Zelle 39.2 billion. But they're really not paying that. They're really paying him 31 and change or something because they're selling off for the and some some doesn't work out, but every portfolio, they're basically taking the contents of the they're taking the contents of the portfolio and they're selling them off and they're paying the people are paying them more than the buildings were were worth as a whole. So I, th- I think you'd mentioned that the asset is one plus one equals 10. That's what Blackstone is doing. So they're really taking Zell's idea, the Zeckendorf idea, and they're refining it to the point where it's never been refined before and probably never will again. And they do very well for themselves. I think they finally s- finished selling them off a couple of years ago and they tripled their investment. I forgot how much money they put down, but it was mostly a debt deal. And if they put down 3 million, they probably walked away with 10. Not bad. You know, it just took them 10 years to do it. I actually, I found a quote. And then we also briefly mentioned this last week about the the sum of the parts is greater than the value of the whole. So in his book, 
he said Zackendorf viewed assets as a sum of parts, so he could increase the value of the whole. Various parts were more valuable to different buyers, so Zackendorf could maximize the value of this holding overall. In effect, making one plus one equals three. And the Zackendorf that he mentioned in this book is a very famous. New York developer. I think he was the largest urban developer in the country back in like the fifties or the sixties.、Um, William Zackendorf. Maybe Jeremy can comment on this one. Yeah, if you have a chance, you should read his autobiography. He's the guy who actually put together the assemblage for the United Nations, and he sold it to the Rockefellers. He went bust. You know, like he was the classic real estate high flying developer who went bust. He built a lot. He, he built. He really built all over the country.、He、built in New York. His son built Worldwide Plaza on Eighth Avenue, which is one of the buildings that was actually sold by by Equity Office to Maplo as a part of that deal. And his grandchildren. I think the son was married to the Secretary General of the UN's daughter or something. The grandchildren developed Fifteen Central Park. So this is a family that's been around real estate. For generations, and they pop up in every book about New York. We'll have a Zeckendorf popping up. But what? What? You're absolutely right. And what Blackstone did was they figured out we can we can take these assets in the one and sell them off and make a lot of money. And and the risk, the way Blackstone mitigates, and and the thing about these real estate deals is there's really everybody's winning. Zell is walking away with more money than. He thought he would get for those assets, so his shareholders are walking away with a premium. Blackstone is getting these buildings now. How do they mitigate their risks? They go and they figure out, okay, we're going to identify these portfolios and sell those. We can just get we can just get cash in, and if it takes longer for us to sell other parts, we can still net we'll make money over the long term, but we can mitigate the money we have to put out. So on day one, they've reduced the price of their that they're paying for this portfolio by almost. Twenty percent, and that's that's really risk management. And Zell made sure that he got an auction, which is what he wanted. But Blackstone didn't back out, and they said, "Look, we may not make as much, but we still made three times our money." I mean, you'd have to work out the IRR for that, but I'm sure they had some very happy investors. Zell also had a bunch of rules that I thought were really interesting, and these were in the last chapter, and I, I wrote them down. So let me just. Read them and talk about each one. I think you've got a lot to say about them too.、Uh, be ready to pivot.、Uh, I think his point about that was, you know, be ready to move from thing to thing because if you're willing to pivot and you're able to pivot, you'll do pretty well because you can always just do another endeavor. And if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. If it does work out, it does work out. The next one he talks about is keep it simple. And he he talks about fundamental truths. This is on page two eleven. Liquidity equals value. Supply and demand. Limited competition, like you talked about with monopoly, and the others he's covered. And understand. He also understands how legislation changes, which helps him understand how the REITs will be impacted. And then he figures out. Let's look at demographics. If demographics. I a lot of money because most people our age live in the city or lived in the city before before the world came to an end. Next one is keep your eyes and mind open. He's always looking to learn more. 
he's always looking to to see what's out there and you know, he's always questioning everything that he that he talks about and everything he sees is always questioning he's always wondering what can i do better and what if i go somewhere what can i learn the next one he mentions is be the lead dog because he wants to be the first so he sees that the real estate market is 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 has some problems he starts buying he's thinking he's figuring out where I can be the market leader and he goes out and makes it so. Do the right thing. I think this is something that's very important. The example he gives is a payday lender, which is completely illegal, but it's kind of a sleazy business in his view. And he says, look, it's a sleazy business. I don't want to be doing this. And you know, I don't mean to take anything away from people who are in that business. His point is, is look, he, if it doesn't feel right or ethical, don't do it. I don't think he's accusing them of not being ethical, but he's basically saying, look, it's it's just something that that I don't want to do. So I think what he's really saying is be true to yourself because that's at the end of the day, that's all you have. He talks about something called a Shem Tov, a Shem Tov. That means in Hebrew is a good name. He, he is very interested and making sure that he has a good reputation, you know him, and you know he's a good person. And the example he gives in this book is he says, "Look, you know, he goes and he meets with a, a Canadian developer, and they said we don't, we never heard of you." And he says, "Okay, here are my references. Call him and ask who I am." The next guy, day, the guy calls him back and says, "Okay, you're legitimate. We'll do business with you because because other people are willing to vouch for you." And you, know, you always hear in real estate about people who are dishonest. I think his point is, this is something we should all as a life lesson learn, I think. Be honest. The only thing you have is your good name. And your good name is worth a lot more than a couple bucks on one day because you can make more money off of it in the long term. Yes, I have something to add on that topic. Especially working in a small town like Las Vegas, I can tell you that I always get phone calls and emails from people who ask me, hey, Mingja, have you heard of this person? What do you think about this person? And that this person refers to a local Vegas developer or a GP or a broker. And this is something that you don't, I mean, everybody has a LinkedIn. Yes, you can look at their bios, but if you want to learn about their characteristics, their honesty, their personality, like I can tell you in a small town like Las Vegas, everybody knows everybody. I think every business you do, everywhere that you're in business is a small town. I mean, when I practiced law, everybody knew who the competent lawyers were. And look, you know, if you jerk somebody around on a Monday, on a Tuesday, they everybody else would jerk you around in reply. And I remember there was one time, this case was, I had a colleague, she was kind of crazy. And she got very frustrated because a case was taking longer than she felt it should have. And that was absolutely correct. She was absolutely right. The way she handled it was the lawyer, the other lawyer, a respected, nice lawyer who everybody loved, wanted an adjournment. And he wanted another. He, he said, I can't be here. I have another case. And he sent the facts in. And she says, I'm going to refuse to consent to the adjournment. She goes to court and she tells her, I'm refusing to consent to the adjournment. The judge basically looks at this and says, the other lawyer on this case has sent me a fax. This lawyer has been doing business with me for X number of years. He does. He, she's like, it's not just, you have to, have, these people are entitled to day in court. And he says, you're absolutely right. But he's entitled to deference from you and from me because he's entitled to professional courtesy. He's not 
canceling his appearance because he's got he's got a dentist appointment. He is engaged on another case in another court. His good name led to this particular lawyer having a very, very hard time. And she started giving other people in the building a really hard time. And, and nobody gave any quarter to her. And in, in terms of just, listen, it had nothing to do with the facts of the case. It was just courtesy. You know, and, and I think in this business, you know, if somebody calls you up and you know that they have a, that they have a, a habit of not coming through on what they say, people are just going to say, yeah, I don't want to deal with it. Zell also talks about loyalty. Uh, he believes in being very loyal to people. And he mentions how loyal Jay Pritzker was to, was to him. And people will, people, he, it was a time where he needed money from Jay Pritzker. And he calls him up and says, I need $50 million. <laughs> and Jay says, you, you need $50 million? Fine. He wires it to the guy within 20 minutes. He trusts him. He's loyal to him. It goes with the good name. I think with the good name goes trust. And that's something that we need to learn. We all need to learn and we all need to remember. And then he talks about don't take yourself too seriously. I think in, in life, we see people who think they're God. I think he's be saying, look, at the end of the day, we're all human beings and we all have problems. We all have you know, every, just keep that in mind. And, and I think it goes with the, the loyalty and the courteousness. And then he says, go all in. Once his point there is once you see something where you're sure about it, go for it. And I think he's done that throughout his life. And that's an important lesson we can take away from it. And that's something that as young people, we should really be uh, looking forward, looking at. I 100% agree with all of those points that he lists out on his book. And we're getting close to that one hour mark for our room. Welcome. Oh, hi, Antonio. Um, we have some new friends, Yao Lin and Jonathan. Um, Jeremy, would you like to open up the stage for audience to come up if they have some questions or if they have some comments? Is that okay? Of course. Okay. Let me open up the stage. Does anybody have any questions or comments that they would like to come up on the stage? You can click on the hand button on Clubhouse and I can put you on the stage. And I can cut out the editing part if you don't want to be recorded in the in the podcast. No, nobody, nobody want to come up. Okay, well then. Well, I would say what I would say to everybody is is you, you we can learn from this book. It's first of all, it's an entertaining book. It's a great read, and, and we can learn from his life and. I would encourage people to read it. It's very interesting to see how he thinks about the world. And one of the things he, you know, of the things he talks about, and this is how we gather information. And, you know, this may not be information about a particular market, about a particular deal. And, you know, look, you may never be involved in an auction. I will never be involved in a $40 billion auction with Blackstone. But what you learn from a $40 billion auction with Blackstone is something that we can use to apply to our lives and careers. And I think that's something that we all should be thinking about because you never know what you learn and where you can apply it. And the, your subconscious is, is an amazing thing. Yeah, I think George R.R. R. Martin, I don't know, if, have you read any of, have you seen Game of Thrones? A little bit, but I kind of gave up. <laughs> it's too long. It's, it's too long and, 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 and the, 
basically what this guy does is he just throws a million ideas out there and he waits to see which ones actually take fruit. So by reading a book like this, you actually see how somebody thinks and hopefully something he says there will be applicable to our lives. And you know, one thing we didn't discuss on for, I, I guess we forgot was emerging markets. Zell is was an became an international investor. And, and he mentioned a couple of things. First of all, looking at investment ratings, and he mentioned Brazil. So when the, when the emerging markets are becoming mature or maturing, he looks at their investment and he says, okay, when, once your investment rating reaches a certain point, that's when he jumps in. And again, that's where he goes all in. He also mentioned China. He's a big fan of China, and which is no longer an emerging market. It's an emerged market that con- continues to mature and grow. So I was just wondering what, if any comments you had about what he said about China. Yeah, I think he was, um, he met in whether it's development or investment partner, JV partner in the US, that company is a Chinese company. And then when these Chinese partners met Zell in the US, they speak English perfectly, and they understand how the American business and versus you know Chinese business systems work. But then after they went back to China, and then when Sam Zhao called them up, they pretended that they don't speak any English. And I think like every time when there's a foreign company trying to go into, especially main, mainland of China, it's a, you definitely need to have a local partner who understands that market and the political system and have all of the connections. And it's also hard to find a local partner that also understand the Western culture. The culture difference, I think, is something that people really need to be aware of. Um, Western culture versus Asian culture, whether it's China or Japan or Singapore, South Korea. Just think about like Macau versus Las Vegas. Everybody says that how Macau is like the second Las Vegas. And I talked about this in my podcast. It's different. Those two are different cities, even though both of them legalize gambling. But if you look at the number of gaming revenue in Macau, it's a lot more than the gaming revenue of Las Vegas because Asian people just love gambling. And then you look at Macau, they have less like entertainment or Cirque du Soleil, those type of shows. And Vegas is more like entertainment. This is like the Western culture. So the culture difference is something that it's very important that you have to be aware of when you do international business. Well, I would ask, you know, not to change the topic, but do you think at some point Vegas and Macau will converge? And do you think Macau will move to entertainment because there? Vegas was once originally just a place people went to gamble and see Sinatra. And I think it's evolved because if it becomes a destination, people will go there. Like if I want to go and my spouse and kids don't like to gamble, by the way, I don't gamble. Um, you know, I think that emerged as a way for people to, you know, for groups of people to go and for them to get access to even more people. Um, so do you think Macau is going to evolve? Do you think there'll be some convergence there? Or do you think Macau is always going to be like a hardcore gambling place as opposed to an entertainment place? Because there is a market for entertainment. And, you know, I think one of the brilliant things that the developers of Las Vegas did was they managed to make it into a destination where you go there. It's it's not just you're going to gamble. It's you're going, you can gamble in the morning, take in a show in the afternoon, and then just hang out for the rest of the day by the pool. So I was just wondering, what's your take on that? 
So if you look at my clubhouse rooms and my podcast, always ends up talking about Las Vegas and history. So if you look at the history of Las Vegas back in, let's say the even before 1950s when Saint Fenachia came in, let's talk about downtown Las Vegas, mm-hmm. Fremont Street, the fun real Godfather movie stuff. Binion, the Binion family, yes. So back then, gaming revenue like it was hardcore gaming. But now, if you look at the Las Vegas Strip today, like in 2021, gaming revenue is probably one third, or even slightly less than one third of the total revenue. And if you look at the history of Las Vegas from 1930s, the Great Depression, and how they built the the dam, the Hoover Dam, and that is how Las Vegas started. It was the Hoover Dam workers that wanted to, you know, they were working on the construction site and they wanted to gamble and have fun during weekends. So they came to a small little town called. Las Vegas, and if you look at um, 1950s when the Old Sands Hotel had the Rat Pack performing at the hotel, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr. They are the legend of Las Vegas entertainment, and that is how entertainment and Vegas kind of like came together. And it was no longer just a place for hardcore gamblers, but it's also for you know wife and you know friends and come. And then what the idea of resort. Came to a place is when Steve Wynn opened the Mirage. The Mirage is a classic, iconic case study that shows how when you build an integrated resort, your non-gaming revenue can be higher than your gaming revenue. When he opened the Mirage, I remember. Don't quote me on this, but I think one of the book mentioned. Gaming revenue was three hundred million dollars. I think in the first one year of opening, and non-gaming was three hundred million. And then the Caesar's Palace next door, their total revenue was like less than three hundred million dollars. So that is how Mirage was so successful because of the non-gaming component. And then he built the Treasure Island, the Bellagio, and then other developers saw this non-gaming components, the potential of these food and beverage and entertainment. And that is how they added these components into their design as well. And then you have MGM Grand, you know, Cirque du Soleil, and and Steve Wynn was the one who brought Cirque du Soleil to Las Vegas. I mean, Cirque du Soleil at the time it was like a small. Mm-hmm. Like a circus in Canada, and then and then he found them, and he brought mm-hmm. them to the Mirage. The mystery is the longest Cirque du Soleil show running on the Strip. So that is how Las Vegas shift from. And also, I have to talk about the convention pits, uh, Mr. Sheldon Alderson, and we talked about him last week too. He was the one who bring conventions to Las Vegas. I mean, at the time, everybody thought that why would you want to build a convention center behind a casino? Business travelers don't want to gamble. Like there were so many criticisms against his idea, and it turned out that he was right. I mean, Las Vegas now today is like the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, convention hosting city in the United States. And look at all of these CES, ICSC, the the World of Concrete convention, the Potato Convention. So, oh, we have Jonathan wants to come to the stage. So let me bring him up. Yes, that's a great question, Jonathan. And I have to go back to the design of the casinos. I visited the Venetian Macau, and when you go to their casino, majority of their space are table games. 
because Asian gamblers love table games, and when they play table games, most of them they play baccarat, not blackjack. And this is the culture difference that I mentioned. Western gamblers they love blackjacks, and a lot of the people, especially the Gen X generation, you know, our parents, they love slot machines. Lily, 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 you won twenty dollars. You know, so it's the culture difference, and because of the culture difference, Macau developers designed their casinos differently, and the layout of the casino floor. Jeremy wanted to add something. Uh, you know, the the thing I really wanted to add was. I, I, I don't mean to dodge your question, Jonathan. I think it's a great point. I think what Minja was talking about really goes back to the last chapter of Zell's book. Be ready to pivot. You know, you, what, we, what you described the story of Vegas was you described developers who were well, willing to pivot and who kept it simple. They understood what they were doing. Win understand. Adelson understands. I can build a convention center that'll feed into my casino and vice versa. Soon, everybody's going to want to come here for a convention to win understands, you know what? I can get the guy who wants to gamble, but what about his wife? Is he going to come here and just have her sitting in the room? She's she's not going to come. I'm going to lose two people because of that. Maybe if I have some entertainment, that'll keep her and her, her friends busy or you know, vice versa. The woman, or Maybe the wife wants to gamble, the husband doesn't want to gamble. You know, So he comes up with all these things. Those developers thought outside the box and they hit a home run. Be the lead dog. I, I think you hit it on the head with Win and the Rat Pack. Do the right thing. When when these developers did the right thing, they they ran good, solid casinos. They didn't cheat anybody, and because they had a reputation for running a good joint, people will go there. People don't want to go somewhere where they're going to be cheated. So the mob, believe it or not, actually was very good at running honest games because. Uh, I just read a book on Robert Maxwell. He had some bingo game in his newspaper. Nobody ever won. Eventually, people said, you know, I'm not playing this. And the mob, believe it or not, knew that if they ran a crooked game, nobody would come. So they ran games very well. Um, uh, again, you know, shame Tov, uh, good name and loyalty. You know, the good name of Win was crucial when he opened up his second casino. or the, Not the second, the second wave, uh, the second company. And... They went all in. So I, I think the answer, to the, the comment on your point was his way of thinking is something we all need to uh, think about. And I think there will be some sort of convergence. I think Americans love um, Americans love slot machines because it doesn't take any skill. Uh, there are a billion people in China, over a billion people in China. If you draw an eight-hour flight map around around Macau, there are probably two billion people in that neighborhood. You think that is that a good estimate? So yeah, so let me just talk about Macau situation a bit. So Macau actually is slowly like having more like concerts or conventions. I know Circuit du Soleil did a show there a few years ago, but it wasn't like very successful and they stopped doing it. But I don't know whether they have like new shows there now. If you're Asian, like Asian people just love gambling. I don't care whether it's the husband or the wife, everybody just loves gambling. Yeah, I think it's the culture difference, but I can see how Macau is slowly trying to get more like convention business or concerts or trade shows. The other point you made was synergy. And the fact is, is that if they start to pivot towards convention business, now you get the people there 
and they're going to go to your casino. I, I think getting back to what you said before, I think you know, what you said about Zell and China, I think we as young people need to do a much better job of learning about other cultures, especially if, and look, this is something that when you're looking for a job, and I'm seeing this now, you know, they want people who understand, far, you know, India, China, the Pacific Rim. And I can't blame them because that's something that our kids, the next generation, is, are going to be brought up very differently in some ways than we were, because they're going to be, you know, very in touch with international cultures. And I think that's probably the wave of the future. And it's, it's probably a good thing. And if you understand other cultures, you, it gives you, it, Zell was always looking, I think, for insight. And I think cultural insight is going to be big, especially if you're doing trans-border transactions. You work in Vegas. And if you're doing a deal in Vegas and you're getting investors from the Pacific Rim, you need to know how to how to talk to them. Because coming from New York City, if I talk to somebody, and you lived in New York City, so you can tolerate new people from New York City, if you talk to each other, you're probably going to get a nice ding from the phone. And Jonathan and Jeremy, you two should connect. Both are Shaq alumni. And you see, Jeremy, you see how Jonathan and I, we have the purple ring mm-hmm. picture, profile picture. And I'm going to make one for you too, Jeremy. Oh, that'd so you be can great. change it that'd, too. That'd be great. Um, this was really a lot of fun. I really had a great time. This was great. Uh, I appreciate everybody. I pre- First of all, I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I hope you guys learned. I hope the podcast gets some listens. This has been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And what is the next book that we're going to talk about? Should we have a weekly book club or... Or is that too much? I mean, I can just tell from the Zoom background how many books you have in your room. I think we can do this like weekly for three years. And we still have a lot of books in your room that we have to go over. Well, not all of them are about real estate. I think we should probably look to do it monthly. You know, if you do 12 books a year on real estate, I think ideally you'd have the people listening, reading the book along with us and not just listening to what we opine. I'd love to get a good discussion going. But yeah, let's talk offline. You know, maybe we could do something monthly. Um, you know, there's a book I read last year about WeWork that I'd recommend. It was fat. It was fascinating. Um, Adam Newman is actually insane. And <laughs> to think that people like Massasong gave him billions of dollars, just said, just said, you know, here, 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 go, go spend my money. Um I think there's a lot we can learn. And the other thing is, is there are some great books about like Wall Street that apply to this. And, we'll, and we could, you know, let's, let's talk about that. I'm very interested in that book too. I'm going to read it and then maybe we can do something next month. And then, so this is like a preview that if anybody wants to join the conversation next time, it's going to be the book about WeWork. Good. And then we can talk about Vegas and all those fun stuff in a future episode. But um, thank you so much, Jeremy, for coming in. Thank you so much. Are we leaving the room? Yes. Thank you so much, everyone, for coming. And then we will see you next time. Bye. Oh, wait. I'm the DJ. So let me play a song first. Cash your yen on the Mayas. Yeah, yeah. Watch it, cash your yen on the
star, I'm a rock star, I'm a one away. Think I'm not hard, you smoke rock car, waste man, why you dumb? I'm with airline, we on airlines like we on the right. I'm with Tay Tay girls, run up on me, they done. Money line, I'm a renegade. Check your